Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to Ebooks and Critical Theory. I'm your host, Dr. Dave O'Brien. On this episode, I'm talking to Alfie Bowe about his new book, The PlayStation Dream World, which is published by Polity Press. Welcome to Ebooks and Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Alfie Bowe, who is Assistant Professor of Literature at HSMC in Hong Kong. And we're going to talk about his new book, The PlayStation Dream World. So welcome to the, uh, the podcast. Hi, Dave. How are you doing? Thanks for having me back on. Yeah, I'm good, thanks. So my second, uh, my second time on uh, with you. Yeah, and, and we're going to talk about, um, I, I guess, some um, similar themes, but with uh, a radically kind of expanded palette of examples. Um, so your previous book was specifically about, uh, I guess, one video game, the uh, the Candy Crush Saga, uh, and now uh, this book really kind of opens up that horizon using. Uh, various bits of critical and psychoanalytic theory, along with lots and lots of really cool uh, video games. So I guess the place to start might be, what are the big arguments the book wants to make? Um, The introduction kind of gives us three about the need to think about video games with the clan, um, the kind of, I suppose, role of social subversion, uh, and how kind of enjoying games can be disruptive. Right, yeah, I know. I mean, it is like you say in, in this book. Um, I think it's interesting you mentioned. I did. I started off by working on on, on mobile phone games. Um, as you say, I was, uh, the previous book I did um, is called "Enjoying It: Candy Crush and Capitalism," and it was basically about what you know, start using Candy Crush as a kind of jumping off point. How do? How is it that mobile phones are responsible for a kind of reorganization of of, of capitalism? Um, and I think it's interesting for me to say that, like, I. I, I'm now working again on mobile phones. So I, I definitely like had a, a, a sensation at the beginning that mobile phones are like the most important piece of technology, um, you know, probably since the internet, or maybe even that those things are not entirely inseparable because, in many ways, the smartphone is kind of realization of the internet. Um, and I still feel that mobile phones are um, are the most important feature of you know technological life today. Um, um, but this book is, as you say, it's, it's called the PlayStation Dream World, and it's focused on video games rather than mobile phones. Although there are some mobile phone games discussed, um, so maybe I can I can say why um, why I chose to write a book about video games when I believe that mobile phones are more important. Um, and I think it's that I, I tried to argue in this book that um, something about the experience of of being a gamer, of playing a game. And now that, that also is like in the, you know, 10 years ago, a gamer meant a particular kind of niche identity, right? But nowadays the penetration rate of gaming is incredibly high. I think, um, you know, over 50% of people in the US play mobile phone games. If you bring in online games and browser games, it's actually worldwide. Something like half the population at least is, is, is engaging with what we could call video games. So to be a gamer to me, is no longer the thing which it used to be, which was to be part of a kind of subculture, um, which came with the identity of a gamer. So, um, you know, so in, in another way, 
And I could say that uh, just in the same way that Hollywood cinema transformed society in the 1960s um, and, and 70s, video games have transformed what it means to be a subject uh, in the last 20 years. Um, so, you know, of course, there were people who never went to the movies, but they, they were still subject to the, the world of, of Hollywood. And I believe the same to be true of video games, that video games are as transformative as, as cinema was, and they have totally kind of transformed our, our social life and our social world and also our subjectivity. Uh, and that applies whether you're an avid, um, you know, candy crusher, or a, um, you know, Counter-Strike star, or whether you've just had a quick game on Fruit Ninja, or even if you haven't ever, in fact, properly gamed. Uh, none, regardless of which of those categories you fall into, we're part of a society which has been kind of transformed by video games uh, in the same way as the previous uh, generations were by, by film and cinema. So I tried to explore in this book exactly why and how uh, video games could be kind of seen as central to social life rather than peripheral, which is what they've always been considered. Um, so that, I guess, is the, the, the very broad um, you know, task of the book. And within that, I think maybe the, the most central argument uh, is that video gaming is a kind of dreaming. Um, the experience of playing a game, I've, I've used a psychoanalytic theory of dreams to explore how... Um, you know, we could understand this kind of semi-conscious state in which the gamer operates. Um, if any of listeners have played a video game in their life, I'm sure many of them have, almost all, um, you know, you'll know that you're, you're fully conscious and fully aware of what you're doing, but you're also acting kind of strangely impulsively and without being fully conscious of why and how you're acting while you play the game. Um, so I tried to sort of define this kind of strange dream state somewhere between conscious and unconscious thoughts, um, which I think is embodied by the experience of playing a video game. Um, and again, the reason why that's important is that I think that that kind of state of semi-consciousness is, um, is very central to social life in a broader scale. Um, so many of our actions when we are on Facebook or on WeChat, um, I mean, I'm in China, so that's why I'm making that comparison. But, you know, if you're on YouTube or you're on Facebook or you're on WeChat or you're on Twitter, uh, many of our actions uh, and acts and decisions take place in this kind of um, peripheral consciousness, which can be thought of as a form of, of dream space. Uh, and video games, I argued, embody that. So I, I basically tried to explore in this book, if we can understand how video games work on our consciousness, we might be able to understand why the patterns of, of social life which work on our consciousness in similar ways. The really obvious kind of, I suppose, way to think through this is with with an example. Um, so the introduction kind of sets up uh, the importance of Jacques Lacan's work, but also um, the start of the book gives us the example of Pokemon Go. So I wonder if you could sort of talk me through how um, Dreaming Lacan and broader social structures or social patterns come together with um, the idea of kind of having to catch them all with your mobile phone. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I do, I, like I said, it's, it's better to talk about it through an example. It's a great example because it's, it's, it's Pokemon Go embodies mobile phone uh, as a kind of tool of reorganizing society and the, the ideas of, of the mobile phone as a key to the city uh, and it also embodies the kind of video gaming world. So hopefully it can connect up some of the things um, which I'm kind of trying to say. Um, 
I mean, Pokemon Go, I, I mean, I'm absolutely fascinated by it. I've been working on it for for quite a long time. There's so, so many different things to say about such a, a small application. But, you know, it's, it's owned by a company called Niantic, who were uh, a startup company from within Google. Um, and, I mean, now they've gone, gone back to sort of semi-autonomy from Google. But the connection between Google and, and Pokemon Go is, is so strong. Um, it runs off the Google Maps um, program interface. Uh, and I, my, my main position on Pokemon Go has been uh, that uh, it's a kind of um, testing phase in in google's tech development to see how to what extent they can regulate and control the movements of citizens within the smart city um so um you know you place a pikachu in a certain place and people will, will go there and of course there's really obvious examples of them that like how the, the poker stops were um you know always taking place in mcdonald's or in another company where google had a deal uh with um or like you you know there were some in hong kong there were some uh, expensive malls which paid for rare Pokemon so that people would be encouraged to you know bypass those shops and maybe spend money in those malls um, so it's, it's quite obvious that Pokemon Go has this kind of connection to reorganizing the city and to a kind of increasing way in which um, our movements in the city are kind of controlled by our mobile phones and by a select few kind of um, well what Nick Cernicek calls platform capitalism by a select few platform capitalists, tech, basically tech giants such as uh, Google and uh, Alibaba and, and WeChat uh, over here, uh, where these companies are playing an increasingly central role in organising our movements in the city. Um, so I noticed some like really interesting technological similarities between, say, Pokemon Go and Grindr, the, um, the gay hookup dating app, and um, something like um, Open Rice, um, the kind of food hunting um food hunting site and these things all all run um you know very similarly um meaning that um so i basically argued that there's a much wider project by which platform platform capitalists silicon valley companies are trying to um you know take control of the objects of our desire whether that's a lover a pikachu or a bowl of delicious noodles uh, and that structurally the way we relate to these very different objects in the in the smart city is similar uh, and the, the kind of patterns of movements which we're encouraged to to, to um take um in in terms of accessing these kind of desires uh, are are turned to the service of, of those tech giants uh, and platform capitalism in a wider sense um yeah, I mean, this is why I'm, I'm, I've used this kind of quirky idea of a desire revolution, which comes from uh, Jean-Francois Lyotard, uh, who argued for a kind of revolution in desire. And my kind of, um, you know, slightly odd view is that the revolution in desire uh, has already happened, um, but it's a very scary one. Uh, and that, you know, what it means to desire has changed in the last 20 years and how we relate to the objects of our desire has totally changed. Um, but this this revolution in desire has been generally in the service of, um, you know, platform capitalism, Silicon Valley, techno giants and in the in, in the um, in the service of increased kind of regulation and control of the patterns and movements of, of people within their city. Um, so my position is that the revolution has already happened. It's already happened through phones and video games and that we need to, to, to kind of start to combat and understand how uh, our desires work in this new world, which has been created by technology. And the role of games has, has, has changed in, in this. Um, you know, you, you talk about 
um, things like Minesweeper as kind of, you know, proto sort of <laughs> bland, um, but, you know, still engaging uh, computer games through to um, Warcraft, Candy Crush, Stardew Valley, which have got quite kind of important relationships to capital and capitalism as uh, as sort of kind of distractions or escapes, you know, supplements is, is one of the terms you use. And then um, you talk through how things might be subversive or provide alternatives. So I wonder if you could sketch that kind of process of change within the art form and then think about its kind of its current social role. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a, that's a good, um, Sort of question. I mean, yeah, I try to do in this book. I mean, like like I'm saying, I'm, I'm really coming from the position that um, everyone's a gamer, uh, so it's not a book for gamers. Um, it's a book, although I hope gamers would like it. Although you know, I can see that they already don't. Um, but you know, it's not. It's not. A, <laughs> it's a. It's not. I'm already getting like all this kind of gaming, like sort of, you know, nasty Reddit and Twitter comments about the book because you know i'm not a real gamer according to the real gamers um but you know i actually am quite a good gamer so i feel like annoyed about that but at the same time i, I totally understand that and it's also not a book which is in in the tradition of game studies i mean game studies is a booming uh, academic field um and i have really not uh, engaged with that i have i, I I do like reading game studies journals and game studies books, and many people in game studies have been very influential on me. But this book takes a quite a quite different uh, approach. You know, it's, it's not for gamers, and it's not uh, a game studies book. It, it's a philosophy book, um, which is a theory of technology and capitalism uh, explored through video games. Um, so that is why I've tried to take this very broad range of games, you know, um, it, from like solitaire. Which you know, or Minesweeper, which is a 1960s game, or you know, unusual old Windows games like Ski Free, um, through to you know your your more serious games of today, your Final Fantasies, Call of Duties, and things like that, uh, all the way through farming simulators, Pokemon's, Candy Crushes, all kinds of things like that, um, and try to to use this kind of range of examples to explore exactly the precise ways in which video games may represent or reflect or be part, be an active part in the way technology has transformed gradually over the last, say, well, on the, on the, on the extreme end, we could say nearly 50 years. Um, if you think of Minesweeper to Stardew Valley, for example, but, but um, in the book, it's more, a little more precise in, in tracing really the changes that have happened from the nineties till 2017. So, um, you know, I've looked at the, the roles culturally of, of certain video games uh, and how that, that may change. So um, some, uh, some, one of my, my main reasons to go to Jacques Lacan, who, who you know, is the key, the key philosopher of the book, is that, um, you know, the focus on enjoyment. And that is the same in my previous book, which is I called it Enjoying It because it was a study of enjoyment. And um, you know, Lacan felt differently to other philosophers of his time. Or, uh, and the main for me, the, the main reason which marks Lacan as different to the history of philosophy and the history of psychoanalysis is that he felt that the one thing that philosophy and scientific models of, of psychology had failed to understand is enjoyment. Um, and that, that's why I am a, a kind of Lacanian, because I think that enjoyment is incredibly central to social life. And Lacan was convinced that enjoyment was the one thing that existing philosophers had failed to account for. Um, so what I've tried to do by using all this range of examples of video games is look at how enjoyment has been gradually changed over the last, say, 30 years. 
Um, and you know that's why, for example, we have to think about the differences between Minesweeper, Minesweeper and, and Candy Crush, for example. And uh, yeah, we've done various uh, kind of more um, data-based studies of those things, like looking at the times when people played games. I mean, the data is much better for the recent years, but um, now people mostly play video games on their lunch break and in the hour before and after work. In the 90s, the weekend was the most popular time for gaming. So this shows a kind of interesting trend from a, a what would be, a, what I think of as a kind of rational recreation, like a kind of Victorian regulation of leisure where at the weekends you were encouraged to spend your time doing solitaire or minesweeper, which would secretly teach you about logical maths, uh, and you would become a kind of smarter and more cultured person on the basis of those games. So what we have now, which is a kind of infinite distraction, uh, that's the, the title of Dominic Petman's fantastic book, uh, 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 in which it describes a, a culture of infinite distraction, where, you know, basically, um, you know, my, 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 my take on that is that um, worker solidarity is fragmented by um, mobile phones in a really stupid, in a really simple way. Like video, in, in the fact that we spend all our, all our fragments of time during the week on the train on the way to work, during our lunch hour, you know, that's the time when we're gaming, we're feeding that time into Clash of Clans or Candy Crush or Stardew Valley. And that is the very moments where you would be otherwise reflecting on your social conditions, you know, you'd be thinking about your 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 um your job and, and reflecting on it. But instead of doing that, you're into this you're into an infinite distraction which actually blocks you from having solidarity with others. And so that's why uh, video games can be a very anti left-wing or progressive thing. Um, one last point there is that something we, you know, we talked about, I remember we talked about this actually before, because this, this is kind of the part of my previous book that I brought into this one, um, is that, you know, you can think of it in terms of going to a cigarette break, um, you know, from your job. Um, in 1990 or 2000, you would have slagged off your boss to your co-worker during that five-minute break, but now you get a high score on Temple Run. Um, and that's just a really obvious example of the way that these kind of video games may fracture the possibility of solidarity with your fellow workers. And I've tried to use those obvious things to explore out into a kind of psychoanalytic and philosophical framework how it might be that video games are the enemy of solidarity in maybe more complex ways. To, to expand on that psychoanalytic framework, you use uh, Freud's four features of a dream um, to think through a couple of, I suppose, you know, sort of major hits um, that have happened over the past few years, um, one of which maybe we'll talk about, which is un Uncharted. So I wonder if you could kind of sketch out that sense of why um, a really kind of core basic starting point of psychoanalysis around how dreams function and, and how they're characterised works to explain um, something like, yeah, Uncharted or, or Persona? Um, yeah, uh, okay, that's, yeah, good. Um, so, I mean, the, 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 the central argument of the book and the reason I called it the PlayStation Dream World is because I believe that video games are, are like dreaming, as I said in the introduction bit. Um, you know, and what, why I think that is that it, it feels like, I mean, just think of it in a really simple way, it kind of feels like you're having, you know, you're, if, if, if it feels the process of actually clicking on your controller is slightly dreamlike in the way that you, you you're totally, um, 
you're totally active, but you don't have full control over the world which you're exploring, um, and you don't have full control over your own decisions, but you, you, you appear to have some control. So, um, you know, in Freud's kind of four features of the dream, which are very, very you know, similar to each other, but you can think of the difference. The, the first kind of thesis of, of Freud was that dreams are the fulfillment of a wish. Now we can easily think of that. We've heard, we've basically most of us heard that at some point in our lives. Um, then the second thesis is that dreams are the disguised fulfillment of the wish. Now that becomes slightly more psychoanalytic because you think of like displacement and condensation and the way that, you know, when you're thinking about Stardew Valley, you're thinking about making your carrots grow into the most, you know, beautiful carrots. Um, but really you're secretly thinking about, uh, you know, how you know, Donald Trump's America has destroyed the um, possibility for kind of, you know, kind of nostalgia for like the, the healthy American past or whatever. So that, that would be the kind of thing which is explained by Thesis 2, right? Uh, you, you think you're dreaming of a, a lovely farm, but really you're dreaming of an escape from capitalism. Again, it's very simple. But the third thesis is that dreams are the disguised fulfillment of a repressed wish, um, which means that... Um, there's a kind of there's a kind of double disguise in each dream, um, which I'll come back to in a second. And um, then the, the last one, um, where I think like Freud went like a little bit wrong, he said that the final thesis was that dreams are the disguised fulfillment of a repressed infantile wish. Now this this one links dreams to childhood, right? And this is embodying repression. In a psychoanalytic sense, it's the belief that dreams may reveal or portray in some way repressed or childlike desires or impulses. Now, for me, that that really seems to be about video games. I mean, you could easily make these different these four points that Freud made about dreams about video games. You know, you could say that dreams are that video games are, you know, the fulfillment of a wish or the disguised fulfillment of a wish or the disguised fulfillment of a repressed wish. And finally, with the last one, you know, we can really think that the history of video games has been theorised in relationship to childhoods and desires. But those two themes have basically characterised the way that people have responded to video games since video games kind of emerged on the scene like right from your your parents who said we shouldn't let our children play grand theft auto you know all the way through to um video game studies people who discuss the relationship between gaming and desire and things like that so so for me this kind of um question of dreams seem to apply so directly to to video games um so um so think of that as, as, so what I wanted to do is kind of counter and develop this. I mean, my overall thesis is that psychoanalysis is important for understanding the world of technology today, but also that the world of technology today is changing the, the subjects in a way which means that psychoanalysis itself needs to change in order to deal with the future subjects, which it, which it must discuss. If psychoanalysis is going to survive if it's going to work on the cyborgs that we're becoming, or have already become, psychoanalysis itself is, is going to change. So I wanted to kind of develop this Freudian idea of dreams as a repressed childlike wish uh, and say that the key to, to understanding video games is in fact that video games appear to be a repressed infantile wish or dream of your own. 
Um, so what we have with video games is a experience which feels like it's your own experience and which you understand as somehow forgotten or repressed desires of your own. Um, but in actual fact, the processes that you enact in the video game dream worlds are not your own at all. They're completely cultural and they're completely constructed by contemporary social and political factors. So what is most dangerous about video games is that they force you to have a desire and trick you into thinking it was your own desire. And that is why I think it's a bit like dreams. A dream is a politically constructed narrative which forces you to think it's got a close connection to your internal subjectivity. So if you can see that dreams trick you into believing things about yourself, then you can maybe see that video games are a version of that. A, a, so in a certain way, I'm, I'm saying that dreams explain video games, but finally we can now understand dreams because we've, we've, we've got video games through which to read them. And we can now say that both dreams and video games are a culturally constructed experience which makes you feel like you have an inherent or natural connection to that experience. For um, me, that makes video games incredibly kind of dangerous um, and scary uh, thing. And how central they are to society, you know, really takes us into a kind of dystopia, uh, which, you know, is kind of shocking and scary. I mean, I, I was going to bring you back to the two examples you give in that chapter, but actually what you've just said makes me think of uh, one of the key examples in, in the chapter that follows, which is Papers, Please!, uh, which is, I guess, a kind of, you know, iPad, uh, mobile phone, PC game, you know, quite sort of low-res graphics, very little sort of interaction beyond making choices. But it, you know, precisely kind of throws up this um, political ambivalence, you know, this kind of sense of dystopia, but also points towards, um, you know, some elements of kind of the importance of, social and political change. So I wonder if you could like extend what you've been uh, saying, but with the example of, of papers, please. Yeah, no, you're right. I, I, I sort of drifted away from you. You were asking to, to, give, to give more examples. And I, I'll do, I want, I'd like to do that in both. Um, yeah. Uh, in both something like papers, please, which I think is kind of subversive or potentially, um, you know, pushing the limits of video games in very interesting ways. Um, and there are also many examples of, of what I was kind of saying before. So, yeah, I get, basically, um, yeah, there are hundreds of examples I could give of games which I feel are basically total ideology, which are making the user think and feel in accordance with this ideology. One of the arguments I made is that gaming kind of interpolates in the way that Louis Althusser explains interpolation. They call you into a particular position and force you to experience that position. But, uh, you know, although on the whole, uh, um, I think that video games are totally transforming the world in this kind of, you know, I kind of sound like some kind of hippie, but it's kind of into this kind of horrible Philip K. Dick style dystopia in which we are no longer thinking for ourselves. You know, I do think that's true. But at the same time, in no point in the book do I do I take a, a, a position against video games. And I'm, I'm really trying to explore exactly as you say, how can they be... Um, subversive, interesting, progressive, you know, left-wing, you know, these are just a variety of terms which, you know, one could critique, but in many ways I think that there is space for the place, the, the, the video game dream world to be seized upon and used in interesting ways. 
Um, and I think something like Papers, Please is a great example of that. I mean, in Papers, Please, a very small scale, uh, as you say, kind of indie game. The graphics are kind of retro, but mainly because, you know, th this is very interesting that like um, all these kind of technological advances that we've had recently basically mean that anyone can make a game. So you can really access the technology and reuse it in interesting ways. And, it's, you know, that's why indie gaming market is booming. And it means that gaming is no longer controlled by just a few people. But you can you can see these pockets of subversion within video games, which didn't exist maybe 10 or 20 years ago to such a strong degree. Papers, Please is a great uh, example of that. Uh, you basically play as a um, border control, um, you know, a menial worker on the border between a fictional Eastern European state and its neighbours. Uh, and you simply stamp passports. You know, the whole game is you look at documents. If the documents are legit, you stamp it and the person passes through the border. If the documents are illegitimate, you stamp it and the person is rejected. Uh, and if, you know, you can, you can try to slightly subvert uh, and let people in that maybe the official foreign policy of that uh, oppressive nation doesn't want to allow in. Um, but the, the, the kind of interesting thing about Papers, Please, is that it shows you how kind of pleasurable, pleasurable um, you know, this kind of bureaucratic imposition of the law is. Um, you know, most people say, well, I loved... Um, you know, I loved uh, letting through this revolutionary into the country so that maybe you could subvert the government from within. But when you explore more what people enjoyed most, it's kind of stamping the passport with the rejection stamp so that someone cannot enter the country. Um, so, uh, you know, Papers, Please is a good example of a kind of progressive game in various ways. One, it, it makes you confront the difficulty of borders. It, it asks to directly consider the importance of a border, how philosophically a border works. But even more importantly than that for me is that it asks you to question your own pleasure. So that the purpose of the game is to encourage you to stamp a passport in the name of the law and reject someone from entering across the border. And then to force you to reflect on why you experience that form of enjoyment found in kind of imposing the law in that, in that moment. And that, I think, expands to a lot of video games. And I want to make this point that I don't believe there are subversive games and conformist ones. You know, it's not that I think Papers, Please, Radical, Uncharted or Call of Duty conservative. It's, it's more complicated than that. It depends on the kinds of enjoyment that are produced between the player and the game itself. Um, and something like Call of Duty is a great example of how if you experience it just purely on one level, the level of American ideology, let's shoot these enemies and preserve the flag, um, then it clearly only has one kind of side. But it's it's also possible to do the same thing that you that I've just explained with Papers Please, where you you know you, you may shoot and uh, a foreign enemy in the service of American foreign policy and then be forced to reflect on exactly how that kind of pleasure is generated. Uh, and that, that goes back to the kind of the Canadian psychoanalysis of it uh, and how we should focus on pleasure and enjoyment itself. Uh, so I definitely don't believe that there are good games and bad games. You know, I believe that gaming has transformed pleasure and that we need to, to 
develop our philosophies of enjoyment and pleasure in order to understand the new forms of, of, of pleasure which are being produced. Uh, so so that, that would be a, a nice way of kind of putting that kind of ambivalence of these things. Like the video game is the desire revolution that Jean-Francois Lyotard describes. It, it does indicate a dystopic society in which the levels of control over our internal thoughts and our impulses are at new levels uh, which never before imagined. Your, your deepest desires are regulated and controlled by corporations with particular agendas and you are tricked into feeling that those are all your own impulses. So that indicates the kind of horrible dystopic world that we're in. But at the same time, there's, there is a kind of ambivalence to this. And that by being so important and central in exactly that ideological way, video games might actually reveal that reality to us and force us to kind of reflect on our own pleasures and enjoyments. Um, and that, that could be very um, subversive, in my opinion. I called the conclusion how to be a subversive gamer. You know, and I didn't, of course, argue, well, you must only play uh, games like Persona and Papers, Please. You know, of course, you should play all of the games and um, experience the pleasure which they intend to produce and then reflect on the different kinds of pleasure that they do produce. And I think that that can be a that could make gaming itself very subversive, um, which I've tried to do in a in a kind of tongue in cheek way, given how conformist and patriarchal and misogynist the history of gaming is that's probably quite a good place to finish <laughs> but that's not the only thing that's going on in the conclusion um there, there is this example of uh felix Katari, the sort of hollywood years um, and you you discuss a script he wrote for the love of uiq and uh, i mean it's a wonderful story and i think it's worth kind of highlighting because um, cause you, you narrate it as him kind of sending basically a, a script and CV with, the, as you describe it, you know, the kind of the hope that uh, from France's sort of uh, sense of cinematography, it might go to Hollywood. And, and I just wonder whether you could kind of give, give a sort of brief version of that story and just um, say how that helps, I guess, reinforce that kind of ambivalent subversion of the, uh, of the dystopia you've, you've described. Yeah, you know, no, it's actually a very similar to what we're just talking about, and I think it can be a good, really good uh, last question. And I mean, I love that story so much. I'm, I'm sure always, you know, every time I get the chance to talk about that, I just think it's great. I mean, I, I just found it so interesting when I heard about that. That Guattari, I mean, had written this um, bizarre sci-fi movie, as you say, it's called Love of UIQ. He, he not only sent it to the um, National Centre of Cinematography in France, but he he sent it to um, Antonioni the legendary uh, director, you know, basically assuming that this movie was, like, definitely going to be made. He was, like, kind of, like, uh, you know, a famed philosopher just thinking, well, I can do anything and I want to write a movie. And and sort of sent this kind of script out to all these all these people who he just assumed would obviously be like, yeah, we're definitely going to work on it. Uh, and obviously no one, no one thought it was any good <laughs> and nothing ever happened. Um, but it's a very interesting actual script. It just got translated into English for the first time last year. Um, and, you know, basically the premise of the movie uh, is that um, a computer life is discovered, a kind of computer consciousness, a, a robot. You know. We're in, now in the world of robots like Sophia 
and all the other kind of robotics that we're seeing, you know, AIs and uh, things, people like Sophia and Replica, which are emerging. And, and Guattari Screenplay anticipates all these things. Um, and it's a robot consciousness. Um, uh, and it's kind of the opposite of movies like, um, you know, Spike Jones's Her um, or Ex Machina, um, where humans fall in love with a robot. In this movie, the robot falls in love with a human, and um, it's a disaster. And it's a disaster because we had a potential to use technology and robots to change human subjectivity. Right, uh, we had a chance. It's, it's in. I think it's in many ways comparable with um, Donna Haraway's Cyborg Manifesto, uh, which takes a kind of feminist perspective on the issue, or with the Zeno Feminist Collective, which is a super interesting, um, you know, organisation thinking about feminism and, and technology today. Um, it's it's a kind of caps counterpart to that and, and it's the idea that basically at the chance to become cyborg is is a great chance right and this is something i, I totally believe and you know the, the the new technologies which we have have available to us have the potential for us to break out of some of these um you know what i was referring to as the kind of horrible capitalist patriarchal aspects of human subjectivity but unfortunately what we're doing is turning our robots into humans so in Guattari's film, they meet this kind of mad robot, and it's it's great, but they turn it into a person. And I think that that's what we can see in our contemporary society today. We can see that we are meeting with robots for the first time, but we are turning them into humans instead of allowing them to turn us into a new kind of subjectivity. Um, I guess it's a bit like what Jack Derrida says in The Politics of Friendship, where the friend has two values or two functions, and one is to just narcissistically affirm who you are, and the second function of a friend is to transform you into a, a more interesting and, and better subject. subject. Uh, what we're seeing now is that the technologies that we're producing and creating are only playing one of those functions. You know, robots are becoming our friends who simply narcissistically affirm what we're doing. And that's um, I'm now doing a project on love and technology where I look at virtual dating, uh, sex robots, AI companions, and look at how they, they function to feed the narcissism of the human using them. And what we've lost is that other aspect, which both Derrida and Grattery indicate, which is the, the huge potentiality to use technology to move us into a new subject position, not just to kind of keep us in, in the ones which we're in. Um, so that, that maps on very nicely, I think, to what I've been saying about video games and what I've argued in this book, which is that video games are a huge opportunity, as are mobile phone technologies, as are other kinds of robotics um, and AI especially. But um, And they're a huge opportunity for us to move beyond the kind of limitations and problems with our contemporary society. But unfortunately, they're being dominated by these kind of um, platform capitalist companies whose interest is only in removing the interesting potential and ensuring that robots, you know, keep the, the, the or take us into a kind of uh, equally horrible future. Um, so I think that we need to be uh, subversive in our in our experiences with these new technologies and video games if we can and also work very hard to um, take some more control of the, the space and future of technology and kind of try to bend the direction uh, that it's heading in uh, so that we don't end up in this um, kind of 
dystopic future. I mean, it's, it's basically, uh, um, yeah, it's basically my position throughout that all, all responses which are nostalgic are, are an issue because what we really need to do is recognise the potential uh, in becoming a cyborg or in, in developing this new technology and just make sure that we don't let that potential be wrested from us by those with these kind of horrible uh, platform capitalist uh, corporation interests. In terms of, you, you mentioned um, the Love and Technology Project, and you've got a book about um, humour and comedy coming out as well. Mm. Yeah, I, w- I really want to work more on this question of love and technology. It's really similar to what we've been talking about because, um, you know, for example, like one company called AIC, they own Tinder, they own um, Match.com, even things like Christian Harmony, uh, OkCupid, you know, so you can see platform capitalism happening in online dating. And you can also see that video game companies are buying out dating companies. I think that's very interesting in terms of what we're talking about with Pokemon Go, that video game companies are like actually expanding into the love industry. And um, because gaming is a bit like love, that's something which I've talked about in this book and also something which I want to expand on. Um, and, and again, you can see kind of platform capitalism where technology is uh, is increasingly changing the ways in which we love, uh, relating to sex robots, virtual reality, um, you know, video games, online dating. And I'd like to kind of explore that. Um, you know, there are already some good books uh, on that, especially uh, Love and Other Technologies by Dominic Petman. Uh, but, and, um, but I think that, that this, and the, the radicality of love also by Shoshko Horvath. But I, I think there's a lot more to be said about the ways in which all these new technologies are transforming love. Um, and that would hopefully be my next project, really, to kind of explore everything that's related to love and technology. Um, but yeah, I have another forthcoming book, uh, which you just mentioned, uh, which is about laughter and, and comedy uh, and, and psychoanalysis. But that, that's, uh, that's totally different. That, that's like a book I wrote over the last 10 years. Um, that's like a really big, serious book that I've written over the last like decade or so about um, psychoanalysis and comedy, which was like my first academic interest. Um, since then, I've moved into all this mobile phones and video games and technology stuff. Thanks for listening to New Books and Critical Theory. On this episode, I was talking to Alfie Bowe about the PlayStation Dreamworld, which is published by Politic Press. 